Today at Reader's Corner, David Nywert, author of The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. From a few ominous right-wing compounds in the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s to the shocking January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, America has seen the culmination of a long-building war on democracy waged by an anti-democratic, far-right movement. So how did we get there? In his latest book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy, journalist David Nywert explores how the movement has built over decades, how it was set aflame by the Trump presidency, and how it may continue to attack American democracy for the foreseeable future. He especially studies how the Pacific Northwest has long been a breeding ground of extremist violence, from the time when neo-Nazis migrated to the area from Southern California in the 1970s, through the great battles in Portland and Seattle and neighboring towns over the last decade. David Nyward is an award-winning journalist and author, whose previous books include Of Orcas and Men, What Killer Whales Can Teach Us, which we discussed in a previous program here at Reader's Corner, and a book, And Hell Followed, with her, crossing the dark side of the American border. He speaks frequently on the issue of American extremism and is the Pacific Northwest correspondent for the Southern Poverty Law Center. David Nywert, welcome back to Reader's Corner. Thanks for having me, Bob. Well, Dave, uh, your book is, is just a really a definitive history of how the radical right rose up over recent years to challenge our democratic way of life. And I think it's fair to say no one could be better prepared for such a task than someone who over the last 40 years witnessed the earliest uprisings of the radical right. And to be clear, it was right here in Idaho. Tell us about those early days of yours as a reporter uh, during the Ruby Ridge incident, what it was and what was practiced there. Well, actually, my my experience began well before Ruby Ridge. Uh, I was the editor of the Sandpoint Daily Bee back in the late 70s, um, 78 and 79, uh, which is about the time the Aryan Nations folks were moving in. Yeah. And we, (laughs) I sat down with, uh, at that time, Pete Thompson was the publisher, owner-publisher of the paper. And Pete and I sat down and tried to decide what to do about this problem with the Aryan Nations people moving in. And we made what we thought was the astute decision not to cover them because yeah. we thought, oh, you know, they just want attention and uh, it'd be smarter just not to give it to them. <laughs> and uh, of course, within about a year or two, that became a not a tenable <laughs> solution because they, the whole region became awash and the, uh, you know, the criminality and all of the issues that uh, that arose in that period. And, of course, it all culminated in 84 with the the rampage by the order, the, the Aryan Nations-based uh, criminal terrorist gang that robbed, I think, 28 banks or something like that, 28 banks and armored cars, and, and also um, assassinated a radio talk show host in Denver. But uh, they were run down by the FBI, run to ground by the FBI in late seven or eight, late eighty four, and um, when it became really painfully obvious that 
that trying to pretend them away doesn't work. Um, thinking that you can ignore them doesn't work because they see the silence as sort of tacit approval. And uh, it's a green light for them, sure. really. Yeah. I got here in 2003, and by the time I got here, uh, most people at the southern end of the state anyway uh, just uh, put it in their rearview mirror. And, and well, that yeah. was then, and, and, and this is now. Uh, but it, it, you don't get very far in your book when all of a sudden up pops Pastor Joe Jones in present-day right. Boise. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's that's right. It's not, and of course, Jones is the one who's been um, advocating for the uh, d- the death penalty for gay people or uh, anyone suspected of it. I suspect, and um, you know, he's not alone. There's a whole fundamentalist movement out there that promotes that. But um, even more importantly, especially for Idaho, is what has been going on in the past 10 years through the Idaho Freedom Foundation and similar organizations. Uh, basically, really what started happening was in the 90s because of the image that had been established by the Aryan nations in the region, um, making it clear that Idaho was a very white place. Um, there was a lot of white flight from Southern California in particular and Orange County in particular, particular that, um, you know, it was people moving up to Idaho to, you know, they said, well, I want my freedom, you know, they're going up for more freedom, but in reality, they were also going up to escape brown people. And, uh, what they saw is, is tied to crime. And so, you know, that's, uh, they started coming in numbers in the 90s. And by first decade of the 2000s, the numbers became really substantial. And it totally changed the demographics of the state. I mean, Bob, Northern Idaho was the democratic stronghold of, of Idaho right. for many, yeah. many years. And that is definitely no longer the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, it's not a place where a Cecil Andrus or a Frank Church could run and get votes anymore, mm-hmm. which is, I think, really sad for the state. But more than that, what it does represent is this, um, takeover of many of the state's institutions by people who are, uh, fundamentally anti-democratic in their approach. And they'll gladly tell you. Oh, well, America is not a democracy. It's a republic, which really is a pretty powerful indicator of their anti-democratic animus. And that's not a mistake. You know, they, they prefer an authoritarian model of, of running things. And what I talk about in the age of insurrection is how they're doing this step by step. They're hollowing out democracy from the bottom up. Uh, doing local institutions from school boards to uh, health districts to even state legislatures and legislative positions. They either fill them with people who are hostile to sort of the democratic uh, guardrails uh, that, that guide these institutions, or they turn out to uh, violently protest them a la January 6th. And, you know, we've seen all this stuff happen in Idaho. 
uh, just time and time again, and particularly in the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. Well, that reminds me of a term you use in your book. I believe it's in reference to the Proud Boys, a hyper-local strategy. How has that played out in, in these very recent years? Well, that was the strategy they decided on after uh, January 6th um, among themselves. And it wasn't just the Proud Boys, but it was also, you know, um, a lot of white nationalists. In particular, I'm thinking of this uh, clack of extreme white nationalists who have settled in up in Post Falls and are they're having a really powerful influence on the politics that are going on up in, in the panhandle. Notably, their attacks on North Idaho College, as well as, as other institutions. But I think the one that made us all sit up and take notice was when we had the Pride in the Park event in Coeur d'Alene in, in June of uh, 2022, that uh, basically became a scene for, well, first, I, I covered the thing, and first we had you know people showing up with uh, with weapons and patrolling the perimeter of the park, you know, with their AR-15s. And uh, oh no, they're not trying to threaten anyone, right? <laughs> you don't find that threatening, do you, Bob? <laughs> and then at the end of it, they had a whole uh, cadre of uh, 31 white nationalists uh, from the Patriot Front. And these guys are actually overt fascists. I mean, you, you people will dismiss the use of the term fascist in regard to a lot of these right-wing groups, but trust me, Patriot Front is fascist. They have a fascist in their flag. They used to have a flyer saying, fascism, the next step for America. <laughs> um, you know, very very explicit neo-Nazi stuff. And uh, they were going to go in and disrupt the Pride and Park event. But uh, fortunately, the Coeur d'Alene police uh, caught on to them and prevented them from entering the park. So instead, I got a bunch of photos of these guys all being unmasked by the uh, Coeur d'Alene police. It was a lot of fun that day, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about the Proud Boys. Uh, you cite at one point Trump's army having five components these movements, uh, these organizations uh, are not exactly alike, and they, they seem to have no. different roots. So tell us about the roots of the Proud Boys, uh, since we you've already touched on the Patriots. Well, actually, uh, so let me be clear. Patriot Front is not the Patriot Movement. Patriot Front is a neo-Nazi. They're, they're in the white nationalist <laughs> group. Okay. They just call themselves Patriot Front to sort of throw everybody off. Yeah, the the first component really was the Patriot Movement, which we better known as the Militia Movement. Uh, and these folks are, you know, that's who I was covering in Idaho and Montana back in the 1990s. And they, um, they're extremely paranoid and uh, run on conspiracy theories. They, back in the 90s, it was a fear of the New World Order and, uh, you know, black helicopters descending on them. And in more recent years, it's been, you know, first it was, oh, Obama's going to take all our guns away. And then when Trump won election, they actually uh, all fell in behind Trump and announced that they would certainly defend him. So, yeah, they were probably the largest component of uh, activists in the crowd on January 6th. 
and um, they're also potentially the most problematic. Yeah, and then there are the street brawlers like the Proud Boys and American Guard, groups like that. And they actually arose after Trump. They, uh, the Proud Boys really were the brainchild of a Canadian immigrant named Gavin McInnes, who founded them. Well, it's, it, he actually founded them in September of 2016. Uh, but we didn't actually see them showing up on the streets until really the spring of 2017. And, you know, I, that was when I first encountered them was at a, protest in uh, so-called free speech protest in Berkeley in April of 2017. And uh, then they started showing up in places like Portland and Seattle, often in collusion with often working hand in glove with the, the militia types. But it was very clear that the Proud Boys and these street brawlers were a different animal, that they were there entirely for the opportunity for violence. And that was what they were about. And in that regard, I consider them neo-fascist because they're essentially, uh, you know, they, they don't really have a political point of view except, uh, anti-liberalism. And, uh, they look for opportunities to beat the crap out of anybody who's on the left. And that's what they're about. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is David Nywert, author of The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. So let's talk about the Antifa boogeyman. Uh, where'd that come yeah. from and how resonant is it today with the far-right groups? Yeah, well, I mean, Bob, had you ever heard of Antifa before 2017 or so? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the truth of, uh, that's the truth for most people. Yeah. Is that, that it was this concocted enemy that just came out of nowhere and suddenly we're being told that this is this immense uh, existential threat to America, when in fact it was really the the claim that they represented some kind of severe threat really originated around actually uh, Trump's inauguration in 2017. Um, there was a lot of conspiracy theories about this. Um, there were some anti-fascist groups who showed up in Washington to protest. Uh, they constituted about 25 people, as far as we could tell. And no, they did not manage to pull off a coup to uh, prevent Trump from taking taking power or uh, displace him from the presidency, which is what which is what the conspiracy theorists were claiming. And it was people like Alex Jones and a lot of the others who first started uh, whooping up this, this Antifa boogeyman. But within about a year, it really it took off after the uh, protests in Charlottesville, where clearly, uh, you know, a group of an army of uh, extreme far right groups um, descended on that city with the intent of, you know, uh, protesting the removal of Confederate monuments. But what they were really doing was announcing the arrival of white nationalism as a political force. And they engaged in, as you know, extremely violent behavior or protests uh, on the streets. Uh, the people opposing them were, in, in most cases, uh, in many cases, anti-fascists or Antifa, but uh, a lot of them were simply, as you know, uh, 
leaders of local church congregations, uh, people from, you know, students from <laughs> the local uh, Democratic Socialists of America group, things like that. Uh, but at any rate, what happened was that the after Charlottesville, a lot of right-wing media decided that it was, you know, that the answer to the very real problem of the rise of white nationalists and other far-right extremists that was laid bare by the events in Charlottesville. And that the answer to that was, well, both sides do it. The other side is this Antifa group. And guess what? They're an even greater threat to uh, America than right-wing extremists. This was the narrative that followed on places like Fox News and um, other right-wing outlets in the months following Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon it became a standard trope that, yeah, uh, Antifa is is uh, the big the big problem, and you, one of the ways that I'd like to point out that this all got conflated was you now hear that, for example, in the summer of 2020, that Antifa and BLM burned down cities across America, and of course it's referring to the uh, George Floyd protests that emerged that summer in the wake of, you know, his death at the hands of a policeman. Well, Antifa had nothing to do with those protests. Those were, it was primarily Black Black Lives Matter protesters as well as other groups. Um, But, and secondly, they didn't burn down cities. You know, I live in Seattle and we didn't burn down and neither did Portland. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There were a handful of arsons and that was about it. But um, nonetheless, that became the standard talking point, and it still is the standard talking point to this day. You know, Antifog turns out, I'd had experience with them before 2016. We had some Antifog groups in Seattle. And the only time we ever saw them was when, whenever uh, actual fascists, neo-Nazis, threatened to turn out and march on the streets of Seattle. And that's what Antifa was for, and it always has been for. They turn out to prevent, uh, to counter the presence of these neo-Nazi groups. Nonetheless, um, you know, and of course, even before 2020, we were getting a lot of mythologizing about them. My favorite was when we heard that um, in the summer of 2018 or 2019, when we had all the fires on the West Coast, the rumor was running around that that Antifa was uh, actually setting the fires and going out and setting the fires and then using the fires as a pretense to loot these rural areas. And so we actually had groups of armed men turning up in the streets of around rural areas, particularly in Oregon, uh, to prevent hanging out with their AR-15s with the uh, and threatening to take action against any um, Antifa who should show up. And that, and that was preceded, I should mention, by the summer of 2018 when there were rumors everywhere on social media that Antifa was going to turn up in these small towns and, and loot and cause mayhem there. And this included, you know, places like Coeur d'Alene, uh, Snohomish, Washington, Grants Pass, Oregon, uh, Redding, California, you know, smaller places that, uh, they were supposed to be 
turning up for. And the, we had again the same result. We had these pickup trucks uh, patrolling the streets of these towns with guys hanging out in the back ends of the pickups um, with their AR-15s ready to take on Antifa. And of course, it was completely bogus. There were never any plans to bring in Antifa buses to these small towns. That was, you know, their numbers aren't that big in the first place, let's be clear. I'm Bob Custer, host of Reader's Corner. Today I'm speaking with David Nywert, author of The Age of Insurrection. In the book, Nywert charts the strange and horrifying rise of the radical rights war on American democracy. So you share with the reader the Republican claims that November 2022 was going to be a red tsunami for the party. But yeah. but that that didn't happen and you give us you give the reader some indication of how the slate was not wiped clean of election deniers. Why don't you elaborate on that for us? Well, it's true that the the election denialists, the people, you know, the Trumpists who wanted to um um, sort of take seize control of the election machinery in the country in 2022 were you know they they put up a, a pretty broad slate and they were particularly targeting uh, the swing states that Trump lost in 2020, particularly uh, Arizona, uh, Nevada, Florida, and Georgia. You know places mm-hmm. like that. And as it happens, all of the, the what the actual outcome of the twenty those elections were that voters repudiated those people because I think voters innately understand that when you start denying the legitimacy of the election count, you're undermining the legitimacy of the democracy itself. You know, I think people kind of get that. And it wasn't, you know, he was, this was definitely what happened in those swing states. However, there were many very red states where those election denialists got fully elected and are in power to this day. So, so it was kind of a mixed bag in terms of uh, the success of the election denialist uh, agenda in 2022, mainly because the, yeah, they lost pretty badly in the key races that they wanted to win, but they nonetheless uh, managed to put a lot of people in, into power. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is like Indiana and, uh, and other states where, you know, it can be, a, it's could turn out to be a problem further down the road because the st- problem remains the same. They're still fundamentally undermining our democracy but and they're doing it from within the system, yeah. which is really really concerning. Right. Well, I asked the question because you know those of us who are looking from afar at these issues, watching the evening news, we hear about the indictments coming out of January six, the convictions, the sentencing, uh, yeah. the story, the stories, the, the apologies, and the heartfelt sympathy. That these guys are now not all of them, but some of them are are rendering, and I think most of us walk away feeling like, well, that that takes care of that, and boy, I, I'm I'm really <laughs> glad that guy saw appreciates now what he did. Uh, but reading your book, you, you do come away with the impression that 
Number one, as you just said, the election deniers are still out there. And number two, what does this bode for 2024 and and what we're about to rerun here in American politics? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what it bodes for us to tell you the truth, but it doesn't seem good, does it? Uh, (laughs) uh, Mostly, I mean, this is the main issue is that this is this really isn't just about Trump and it's not really just about the Republican party or any of this. What it's about is um, I, I honestly, Bob, I think we're in, a, in an epistemic crisis in this country where people are unable to, to ascertain what's real and what's not. They can't, they can't discern reality from fiction. And it has to do with the spread of this media environment in which, you know, that's just riddled with conspiracism and disinformation and the fact that the people who are spreading the conspiracism and disinformation are very skilled at hiding that fact, at making, turning the mirror around and saying, no, you're the one spreading disinformation. We're the ones spreading the truth, right? And people can't figure it out. And that's, of course, what Trump excelled at. That was kind of the, the basis of a lot of his um, campaign style. But he's not alone. And ultimately, this is the foundation of authoritarianism. This is how authoritarianism has always worked. You get the country divided. You make a mess of the government. You run everything into the ground so that nothing works right. Uh, and we're all pointing the finger at each other. And eventually what happens is people get into what I call an authoritarian crouch where really you just want to stay secure. You want to keep your family safe. You want to stay out of all this. And the only way, and, and your first step in that, your first and most obvious choice in that is to support the authoritarians who say they can solve everything themselves and, and, you know, and then you don't have any of the messiness that always accompanies, uh, democratic rule because, you know, democratic rule is by nature messy. You know, it's very complicated and then it takes into account everybody else's, everybody's point of view. And that's the opposite of authoritarian rule where basically one person decides everything. And a lot of people actually prefer that. That's what authoritarian personalities are about, is that they prefer that guy who can cut the Gordian knot, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so I, th- I think it's really a problem for the country um, systemically. Uh, I think we are uh, headed into a protracted period where we are going to be divided internally. And let's not forget that a lot of this also is a result of a media ecosystem that has found it profitable to divide the country. That's what Fox News is about. Its entire revenue model is about dividing. Basically, its, its revenue model is predicated on coaching half of the country to hate and loathe the other half. And there's nothing good about that. And, and until we get back to an ethos of journalism that actually values um, factual correctness, that actually values 
people who um, are able to, you know, accurately predict what's going to come down the road instead of all of these uh, pundits that we now have who are just proven wrong time after time, after time, after time, but they keep showing up on TV. You ever notice that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We need to change basically the incentives and value systems within the media environment in a way that encourages, you know, that promotes the truth and factuality. And until we get that, and until we get away from basically people making profits through uh, tearing the country apart, um, then I think we're going to continue to have these kinds of issues. Well, if we're going to continue having these kinds of issues, it's important to know exactly where they come from and what the future holds. And uh, your book, David, uh, does that for the reader. I want to remind our readers again, we're talking about The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. The author is David Nywert. He's been generous enough to spend a little time with us today at Reader's Corner. David, thank you for joining us, and thank you for writing The Age of Insurrection. Hey, Bob. It's always a pleasure to talk, especially to my homies in Idaho. I still still have Idaho in my bones, (laughs) and I still have family members living there. So um, it's unfortunately become kind of a center point for these problems. And so I hope that my friends who are there are still able to muster the courage to stand up to this stuff and fight it. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.